0: Behind the number of uh, shootings involving those who are suffering from mental illness, there's an individual who had a life. There's an individual who smiled, who loved to be with people, who loved to laugh, who was a rock and a foundation.
1: You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Today, our guest is our friend, Joe Height. Joe is a journalism professor, columnist, writer, consultant, and a bookstore owner. His newspaper career as an editor, director, managing editor, or reporter spanned for 35 years. His new book is Unnecessary Sorrow. A journalist investigates the life and death of his oldest brother, ordained, discarded, slain by police. It took Joe more than a decade to write and publish. So Joe has given me the great honor of hosting and then interviewing him during the official launch of his book here in Tulsa at Magic City Books at 7 p.m. Tuesday, September 17th at the University of Tulsa's Allen Chapman Student Union. Then you don't want to miss the book launch in Oklahoma City at 6 p.m. Thursday, September 19th at Joe's Own Best of Books. All the details about those events are in the show notes. To give some background on the book, Joe has always wondered what happened to his oldest brother, Paul Height, a Roman Catholic priest purged from the church because of his mental illness and who was killed by police on his front doorstep. Joe weighed through thousands of pages of documents, including his brother's own writings and a 150 page police report about his death. In the book, Joe spotlights the days when our mental health system often misdiagnosed and mistreated people suffering the most. At both book launches this week, Joe's daughter, Elena Height, is going to perform the song, My Uncle. It's a song she wrote based on the book. So when Joe invited me into the University of Central Oklahoma's podcasting studio, where he's a professor, Joe pulled up a 10-minute video of Elena singing this song on YouTube Live. And we both sat there and listened as this song played and in between singing, Elena told the story of her uncle. In the show notes, you can find the link to the video. You really have to hear it to understand the power of this song. So now I just want to play you a little bit of that song, and then that leads right into our interview with Joe.
2: Oh, how was I supposed to know?
1: How many times have you watched
0: that? Well, I can't watch it too often, but um, it's probably maybe the third time.
1: What yeah. does it mean to you that she wrote that song? Uh,
0: after reading the book and you know the initial manuscript, she wrote the song based on it, and it it's a song where she talks as she's singing, and um, you know, and I get teary-eyed whenever I
1: see her yeah. uh, singing it. So, yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. My goodness. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. To begin, uh, I want you to tell me about the little things about Paul the, you know, that you remember that really say so much about who he was.
0: You know, what I remember Paul the most was his smile. He had this incredible smile that would radiate a room, and I remember uh, how he— uh, had this laugh uh, that would also fill the room. He he was the oldest um, member of my family. He was nearly 16 years older than me and uh, went to pre-seminary before I was born. So he was gone from our house by the time I was born. But what happened throughout life is that I was home when Paul came home again and And there were a lot of instances where Paul and I interacted. And so what I remember the most about him is that smile, that laugh, and his willingness to give away everything he owned. I mean, all the possessions, money, anything you would ask for, he would give to you. Except for two things. He kept his writings. He would keep his writings in these notebooks. And he would keep clippings and photos Which was incredible to me that he would keep what he wrote and photos and clippings and give away everything else in his lifetime. And I think that's something very important to remember about him is the giving person that he was and how he kept that to his final days. Even though when he didn't have money, he would give away his money. And it became a point of contention not only in the church but in, the, in my family uh, itself. And the fact that, you know, my dad would make furniture and, and he wouldn't, he didn't trust Paul to give him that furniture later in life is because he was afraid Paul would give it away. Uh, Paul had a guitar at one time. So he, was a, he was an excellent singer and he could play the guitar, and yet he'd give away his guitar. Uh, there was an instance at one point he had a friend who came to his house and pointed to a Bible and said, Oh, that's a really nice Bible you have, Paul. And Paul gave him the Bible.
1: What what drew him to the church? Why did he want to be a priest? I,
0: I think there's a lot of things that drew him to the church. One thing was the oldest member, uh, male member of the family. And and in those days, it was a great honor for the oldest member of of any family uh, in the Catholic Church to become part of the Church, and I think that was part of Paul's calling. But in the book, I also explore the po- the the possibility that it could have been part of a penance. My oldest sister, Linda, Linda, uh, was nearly two years old when she drowned in a stock tank in the back of the home that my parents and Paul and her were living. At, at the time, and there was an incident in which Paul and her apparently played in the stock tank the day before, and then both parents thought the other was watching Linda, and she wandered off and ended up drowning in that stock tank, and 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 I, there may have been some ties at that point to where that not only was the oldest male member of the family, but could this be the penance that the Hite family would pay? For what happened to the oldest daughter. And I think that's to me, is what I tried to explore in the book, is, is what led him to the priesthood and then ultimately what, what he was like in the priesthood as well.
1: His first signs of serious mental illness, of schizophrenia, you said, happened in his late 20s.
0: It happened in his late 20s, and what was interesting about it, no one ever saw the signs um he was ordained in 1968 at his home parish in Guthrie it was a it was a big deal um, it was a, an event in which actually appeared on the front page of the Guthrie Day leader at the time it was such a big event in the community and at that time there was nothing that told us anything but he was destined uh, for great things in the church and then in the early 70s all of a sudden he started having these... Um, these states in which he would stare at the sun. They called it catatonic states where they would find him staring at the sun and then he would start wandering off at night and and things like that. And at that point, we didn't know what was going on because there hadn't been anything that told us that there had been any issues. In researching the book, uh, I found out that Paul had late-stage mumps in which he he apparently developed mumps while he was in the seminary at some point. And the correlation between late stage mumps and uh, onset of schizophrenia has been studied. Now, not saying that there was some genetics that was also in play there, but also the fact that he had late stage mumps uh, might've played a role in this and something that he didn't realize, nor did my parents realize as well. Nor did the church realize that, so in the early seventies he started developing these signs that he was had a chemical imbalance in his brain, as they called it back then, and uh, he started ending up in hospitals and and started doing you know particularly what they considered were s- strange behavior it, one point he went to a Tulsa Holiday Inn and declared that he owned every Holiday Inn in the world, and I'm taking over at this point um, as well. And so all this behavior started to uh, multiply, and in 1975, there was, a, and I'm still trying to find out exactly what happened, but in my opinion, the church decided the bishop at the time, which was in uh, now as the Tulsa diocese, decided that he um, should be laicized or defrocked. And, and that's why I've came to the conclusion that the church is the one that made the decision in cooperation with Paul. But I don't know what state Paul was in at the time. There's no letter. It was a family legend that there was this letter that was sent to Rome from Paul uh, that started the process, and I, at this point, I have no evidence of that letter. I couldn't find any, but that's the way family lore is compared to what you find in documents and things like that. He actually tried to return to the priesthood in 1978 and actually had hope. I found, you know, the diocese, Tulsa Diocese. Um was pretty open in talking to me. They gave me an outline of what was in his file, but they also let me see about 14 different documents related to him, which is unheard of, is that any uh, diocese or the church would allow anyone to look into uh, a priest files, especially one who's passed away. Uh, those are buried, and they're secret, and only the bishop and certain other individuals have access to them. They allowed me to see uh, some of those files. I never saw a letter. I saw letters, letter that he requested of Rome, but I did see letters in which he had hope that he would be readmitted to the priesthood in 1978. Ultimately, that was denied.
1: Um, So... One of the things, so Joe was kind enough to invite me to come and speak to two of his media ethics classes here at the University of Central Oklahoma. We're actually in their their amazing podcasting studio right now. Thank you, Joe. Um, but one of the things um, we got to talking about during that class was you would not blame someone who has mumps. <laughs> you wouldn't put them in jail. You wouldn't call it a moral failing. You would see it, obviously, as a as a as a a disease that needed treatment and something that was, um, you know, someone could live in recovery from. But there's so much judgment on schizophrenia. There's everything uh, that it's a moral failing. Um, You know, some people consider it, you know, um, some sort of punishment from some sort of higher power. You know, there's just um, that you're, you, you just did too many jogs and your brain is messed up and that's why you're having, you know, there's just so many of these like stigmatizing, blaming things that you would never do for someone who has mumps. Um, and so it's just, it's it's interesting how that turned out. So Joe, in in learning more about the the mumps theory, what, what, what all have you found?
0: Well, I found there were studies going back to um, early 1900s uh, indicating you know that that mumps can cause encephalitis, which can lead to different types of of issues as well, and then it, ultimately there are, uh, some scientists have found links from uh, late stage mumps those were later in life, especially to uh, schizophrenia and bipolar behavior uh, as well so I think there's and there's the most recent one was a two thousand and twelve a pretty extensive study that was linking uh, the onset of uh, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder with late-stage mumps. And I can tell you there was – this came during the discovery and researching the book, and there was a lot of discoveries I made in research of this book, and that was just one of them that, that my goodness, that – my sister, my oldest sister, confirmed that she remembered when he had mumps. And then I found that when he was going through uh, Griffin Memorial in Norman, uh, they discovered in some physicals that he had uh, issues related to mumps. And But nothing linking what could have happened to him in life based on the fact that he had late-stage mumps, and, which was interesting in its own right. And I think this is something that I hope, especially in the mental health community, that it's discussed more, is, is this an issue or, or is it something that, that needs to be talked about in relationship to these types of, of diseases, how a physical disease can manifest itself into mental illness.
1: Uh, one of our friends, actually Jacqueline Cosgrove, did a wonderful series on mental health treatment in Oklahoma a few years ago. Um, Jacqueline's uh, now with the LA Times. But in that story, one of my favorite things that she found out is one of the first, maybe the first commissioner for the Department of Mental Health, he said, if mental illness caused people to turn green, we would never have a problem getting funding. And that says so much. We have so much prioritization of treating the body, but. Treating the mind kind of goes on the back burner, but you know, if if we all turned green when we had depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, there would be immediate immediate attention, and there wouldn't be judgment. People would see that it's a it's a disease, but you know, the fact is, that people suffer alone until they go into crisis, and um, sadly, people have bad outcomes. Um, all right, so the a part of of Paul's story is that he was actually shot. Twice because of his mental illness. Uh, when was the first time?
0: The first time was in um, 1996. Uh, it was uh, almost a year after he had met a nurse, a very kind-hearted nurse uh, named Lynn. And well, I think it was at St. Francis when he was um, he was put in the hospital during an episode in Tulsa, and he met her there. And, um, and it was the first incident happened almost a year after she was killed by her son uh, in her home. So this was the books about, about a series of tragedies and how they affected him. I think nearly a year later, he was off his medication. He had went to a nearby uh, um, service station, gas station, and um and was enraged when he went in and um he started yelling at the ones they were our neighbors for years and some of the nicest people you would ever want to know and they were friends with paul they were good friends with paul but they could tell also when he was having issues and so he went in as if he had owned the place that seemed to be uh, something that happened and started screaming at her, and there were some people in the, in the service station who surrounded him at one point, I think it was outside. He had a pocket knife. He pulls out the pocket knife, and usually what happens in these instances when they're displaying the pocket knife is get people away from me. Do not come close to me. I want you away from me, which they, they did, and so he put it back into his pocket. This is according to police reports, okay? That I, that I was able to piece it together through police reports and things that I was told. started walking down the highway. And at that point, it used to be there was a, a sheriff by the name of J.C. Burris. And J.C. Burris, I, I think, was the first African-American sheriff who'd ever been elected in Oklahoma. Just a tremendous individual. And whenever Paul lived in Guthrie and was off his medication, Uh, the sheriff would call a family member and say, Paul's off his medication, what do you want me to do? And sometimes we would, you know, my dad or my parents would do something to take him to a mental health crisis center or take him to Norman, or the sheriff would. And the sheriff would always know how to handle Paul, never in a threatening manner or anything like that. Well, at that point in time, the sheriff had since retired, and so the sheriff was called, and the sheriff, instead of doing what the sheriff normally did to try to calm the situation, calls the police department. Police arrive on the scene, and uh, the officer tells Paul to stop. Well, Paul, when you have—the reaction is when you have that type of, of voice, that commanding voice, you know, that comes on, stop, you know, and— um, Instead of stopping, as most of us would, when they're having some kind of mental health crisis, the reaction is just the opposite. I need to charge. And so that's what Paul did. The officer shot him, shot him once in the stomach. And actually, the officer said later in, in an interview that he was intending to shoot him again, and if Paul hadn't tackled him, he would have shot him again. And so... Uh, Paul ends up, they find that the pocket knife was in his pocket, where he put it back in. He didn't have a knife at the time. And he almost died. I mean, there was a time when the, uh, the, the, the uh, doctors in the emergency room, I think it was OU Medical, basically told us you need to prepare for him to die. And somehow he survived. And I think it was, you know, in a way it could have been a miracle he survived. Uh, because usually you do not survive those types of, of shootings uh, where you're shot in the stomach. As a matter of fact, the bullet remained uh, in his stomach until the day he did die. And yet he survived, and actually I think at that point, Paul, I, Paul had never talked to me that he was suffering from mental illness. Uh, but after that point, when he was in the rehabilitation center, I took him out to lunch one day. He said, Joe, you know, I, I have mental illness. And so we started talking, and it started a relationship that changed from a teenage boy who had been scared of his brother uh, to a man who loved his brother. And um, we had lots of conversations. We'd go out to lunch, and my wife and I would take him out to dinner. and and um, But at that time, what happened was is that There was issues that I note in the book that, you know, because Paul had been shot without a knife in his hand, they had charged Paul uh, in the incident, and I called an assistant DA, and basically the agreement was, you get Paul out of the county, and we will not charge Paul. And at that point, my dad was deeply hurt by what had occurred, embarrassed what had happened to his neighbors and his friends. And he said, you need to, you need to do that. We'll get him uh, settled in an Oklahoma City apartment after he recovers and everything like that. And that's what happened. Basically, there was an agreement that, you know, you don't do anything against us and we won't do anything against Paul. And that's what happened. And we moved him to an Oklahoma City apartment after he recovered.
1: And did he get better? I mean, did he? he get got, Yeah, oh,
0: you bet. Um, he became kind of—I describe him as the rock of the family. He became—he became this kind of the—the—the the, the family gossip because he would always find out what was happening in the family, and he'd call us, and he would, you know, he joke around with us about what was going on in the family, and and he just became this this figure that we just—I looked up to. I thought it was just. how how wonderful this individual was and where he's come so far uh, since this incident with the Guthrie police officer. Uh, He was taking uh, shots. They were taking the monthly shots. They were pretty rare back then, I understand. But he was taking the monthly shots and was pretty stable. Uh, But again, not understanding as a family member that medication, if not adjusted and not changed, tends to wear off uh, as well. And so he was having some issues at times as we got into the latter part of the 90s. And, but to us, he, he knew he was just a smiling, happy self uh, who loved to go to the local Brahms for a hamburger or loved to go to Barnes & Noble, or loved to go to places like that. It became his life, you know, he, he had to go to furs. He knew about the specials at furs, <laughs> in which you could get all you can eat. He loved to go to Hometown Buffet. One of his favorite places to go was Hometown Buffet because of the fact it reminded me of my mother's cooking, his mother's cooking, mm-hmm. and that's what he loved to do. And so that's why I think, to me, uh, the shocking incident that happened in 96 became something that he became reborn in a way. He became what Paul, we thought Paul, would always would be. He retired. He was a transportation department worker, worked the st- roads for a decade. And that's what he did after uh, leaving the priesthood, became a transportation worker. And um, he was not suited to be a transportation worker. He was suited to take their test, and he took their test, and he would ace their test, you know. And that's what he became known for is you need someone to take the test, you let Paul take it because this guy could ace our test, okay? So he that's what he did, but he hated going out in the cold. Uh, and, he, you know, he, whenever there was a storm, it, it was something he dreaded because he knew – as a transportation department worker, that he would have to go out. And to this day, I feel for the transportation workers for what they face, especially during uh, adverse weather conditions as well. Another thing about Paul that he he was, he knew the Bible by heart. You know, the rest of us, when Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons show up to your your door and knock on your door, you're going to say, no, 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 not today, or... Or you may talk, be courteous for a few minutes, but ultimately mean, you don't want to talk to them. Paul would invite them in, and Paul would have a debate <laughs> about the Bible with them and could actually outquote them on the Bible and everything like that. I don't know whether they realized they were talking to a, a Catholic priest or not, but that's what Paul liked to do. He liked to talk about the Bible. He liked to eat. He liked to laugh. He liked to be with family. Um, you know, because of the medication, because of the effects of the medication and everything like that, and because of what happened to him in the, in the mental institutions that he went to, he, got, he was addicted to smoking, and so he was. crowds made him nervous. And so he would have to step away whenever there was a situation involving any type of numbers of people or anything that made him nervous. What he would do is step away and take a smoke, and then he would come back. Um, to to the the place and, and be himself self again. He, he relished in the fact of, of, and in those years after he was shot by Guthrie Police, he relished in the fact of being with family and not particularly being the center focal point. A priest is a center focal point of everything. He knew what it was like to be the center and the focal point of everything. At this point in his life, he just wanted to be there with you.
1: So... It was a snowy day in two thousand. I see
0: snows. yes, snowy day. Uh, what happened at that particular time? And you're talking about the year December two thousand. And um,
1: and you, what were you doing at the Oklahoma? What was um, your job I, there?
0: I think at the time I'd just been promoted to uh, a managing editor position. So, um, and I had been community editor and then assistant a managing editor, and then promoted to a managing editor. Yeah. And that's that's
1: second point. in command yeah. at it, a newspaper. That is a very prominent
0: job. Yes. And so, so, you know, and the expectations are and still today is any weather events occur, you better be ready to be there or out on the streets or reporting or doing something to that respect. It's been particularly long days uh, dealing with this major winter storm that hit Oklahoma in that year, and um, uh, so we had had, Paul had called me and said that, he, he had asked us, can you take me to get my shot? Uh, and we hadn't realized that he had missed a shot in November. And there had been a priest that had uh, really, uh, Father Hinderhan, who was the pastor in Guthrie, Paul and him had become really good friends over time when when Paul had lived in Guthrie. And Father Hennerhan, even when he moved to Oklahoma City, every month would take him out to Mazio's Pizza. They would go to Mazio Pizza, <laughs> and then they would go buy cheap cigarettes, and then they would go to get his shot. And um, But Father Hennerhan became sick in November, didn't take Paul to get his shot, and hadn't told anybody. We didn't know. The family didn't know he hadn't got. The shot and there wasn't any no one had contacted saying hey do you know where paul why has he not gotten the shot and so he calls me in in december and says can you take me to shot? and so i checked and nan was available that day and um and so i said well nan can take you but why don't we have lunch at earl's so we went to earl's on western to have lunch and he was really jovial and um and but I could tell he was looking beyond me, and he was laughing, and I was like, "Paul, is something wrong? Is is there something going on?" He said, "No, no, 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 nothing's, nothing's wrong." And and he would we'd continue to talk, and and I thought, you know, I'm sure the shock's going to kick in, you know, she can, Nan's going to take him to the, the shot, get the shot that afternoon, which he did, and that everything will be fine, and Paul will be back to himself, and so. Um, not realizing the shot, you know, with, because he hadn't had the shot the previous month, it was not kicking in immediately. And so when you, when you think about someone who's starting to suffer from a mental health crisis and, and the fact that a snowstorm or ice storm on top of that and they feel like they're being trapped, uh, it becomes an issue. And so, what happened on that night, well, that evening that he died, was that he was pounding on a neighbor's door, and they were scared for you know for good reason, and they called police. And three officers arrived at the scene, and both came into, all three went into his apartment for a period of time, and then suddenly left the apartment to call it what at that time was like a sheriff crisis team or something like that and and what police said happened from then is they closed the door behind them and then paul came out of his apartment waving a knife which they said was a bread knife which is one of those serrated bread knives and they one of the officers uh, fired and shot and killed him i think uh, i found three shots hitting, there may have been more. There was one bullet that went through a window of a a adjoining apartment. It was in northwest Oklahoma City on the ground floor uh, as well. And he so he died on his front doorsteps as well. So even in that incident, there and what I did immediately after his death in two thousand is I contacted an attorney, not not for the purposes of filing a lawsuit. There wasn't any intention myself or my family to to file a lawsuit it was to find out what happened and so the attorney hired a private investigator to look into what happened interviewed witnesses and everything like that so i was able to compare what the police said in their report to what the private investigators uh, said in his report. And it was really interesting in both reports there, and the attorney also went through the file photos. I've never seen the photos. I've seen the, the hard text copies of the report, but never the photos. Well, the attorney went through the photos and found that there were pictures of knives, of the knife, of that serrated bread knife. But there was never a picture of Paul's body with a knife, in the vicinity, never a picture. They said that he, the knife was under him, but there's not a picture, apparently, of what the attorney said, well, what I've heard of, or anything like that, of Paul's body in relationship to the knife. And the witnesses said they didn't see a knife either in relationship to him as well. So, again, there's questions again whether it was a knife or not. Yeah, he, and he was in that state. There was reasons to fear him. But again, using the commanding voice and doing things like that causes the ultimate opposite reaction of what you're trying to do, what you want to have happen. All
1: right. Um, So there's no easy answers or solutions to this. I will say that Mike Bros, our CEO, has done a lot of good work working with law enforcement. And what he always says is, you know, we just have to educate law enforcement to have a compassion to have an understanding to know how to de-escalate situations like this. And law enforcement have been very welcoming. They don't want horrible outcomes like this either. Um, And so the question I have is, do you blame the police?
0: No. No, I I don't blame the police. I don't blame the individual police officers. Um, You know, as I say later in the book, that i blame systems that fail to train the police officers you know because we're all human and we all fear what what we perceive as an issue in front of us especially someone suffering from a mental health crisis and um and as i told you know i got questioned by a reporter afterward but you know this question of you know Dying suicide by cop is what it's called as as well. And she was asking me the question, what do I think about police? And I said, I've forgiven them. I said, I I don't have any ill will against the officers who were involved. You know, Both of them said in the interview, they didn't want to shoot Paul. They were just doing what they were trained to do. They were trained to, to shoot in the mass because of the threat that was occurring at the time. Um, But again, I think what the issues are and what the issues in the system, the three systems that I really look at in relationship to Paul's life uh, are, you know, the Catholic Church itself, the mental health system that affected him so deeply, and also police is sometimes the training that's involved and the awareness and everything else that... Could help de-escalate or help uh, help that the systems are often neglected or ignored, and I think that's important things to think about. It's uh, to me, it's not the individual police. You know, as a matter of fact, since I since Paul's shooting, I've had many interactions with police, and and you know, from initially be- fearing the officers who were supposed to protect and serve me, I've become understanding of what issues they face. And how, in in the end, as David Prater told me in a one-on-one meeting, meeting, it's a public safety issue. It's a public safety issue for the person suffering through the crisis, as well as the officer who's encountering that person for the first time. And when you're encountering a person for the first time who's struggling through an issue, you're going to do as you're trained. And you're going to react to how you're trained. And whether you escalate or de-escalate the situation is according to how you are trained. And believe me, in, in a lot of instances, I think officers are faced with extremely difficult situations. And I'm sure that night they were faced with extremely difficult situation. But if there had been a critical incident team or if they'd been trained in CIT, I maintain probably Paul would be alive today.
1: Um okay you you wrote you spent a decade researching this yes. book it's finally coming out do you have more peace now than you did a decade ago do you knowing all that you know are you at peace now or does it give you more questions and cause more turmoil
0: well i think when you talk about peace i think you have to determine what that peace is you know peace in 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 knowing more about what occurred, that what affected Paul, and what he went through. Uh, but there's also still a lot of questions. Uh, there's you know, agency that didn't cooperate at all. There are hospitals that didn't cooperate. There were a lot of cooperation in, as far as public agencies were concerned, and in other instances there weren't. And so to me, where there's not peace is that I think still today – there are numerous, numerous people out there who are struggling with mental illness in these systems that are, that are either being uh, mistreated, ignored, neglected, and potentially lose their lives. And I think the issues that you see what is happening in the 70s to the year 2000 still exists to a large extent today. Yes, there's been a lot of improvements. I I can think in law enforcement, there's been improvements. The community policing model, uh, there's been a lot of improvements in in checkup, checking, checks and balances in the mental health system and avoiding neglect that occurred back then. And even in the Catholic Church, there's more consideration and sensitivity toward priests with mental illness. Uh, but at the same time, the stigma still are, uh, still is there. The fear still is there. And I think particularly those who, who struggle with paranoid schizophrenia, as my brother did, I think even in the mental health system that there are issues with people who have these types of tendencies. They are segmented in their own box. And I think that to me is an issue uh, that is still prevalent today. I think there you know, like, I think there are a lot of organizations like Mental Health Association in Oklahoma are doing wonders uh, to bring more awareness, to bring more training, uh, to provide uh, more opportunities uh, for people with mental illness to be able to have a voice. And I think that voice is very, very important. But at the same time, if people ignore that or don't listen to that – or refuse to get the training or refuse to provide the training, to me that's the problem is, is that if you don't provide the training, then how are your officers expected to do it? They're supposed to do it on their own time. Some do. I've seen many officers who will get that 40 hours of CIA training on their own. But the trouble with it, are they supported by their department to do that, or is the department saying, We don't have this time for you to do that? You know, what is the level of training that's needed for officers to be able to handle what these domestic situations in which they encounter, which they're going to encounter perhaps from the very first time they they're on the streets? So I have really I, I you talk about peace. Peace is a very difficult question to answer, um, and it will always be a difficult question for answer to answer for those family members and those who struggle with this on a daily basis
1: so what so someone reads this book, lots of people read this book what What do you hope the effect is what What influence do you hope this book has
0: well ultimately Paul had. I found in his writings uh, some, some incredible things that he was thinking about. and, and he, But one quote ca- came out to me. It was, I missed my true vocation, which was to help people. And I thought, you know, maybe this is what the intended purpose of this book is, is to help people. Uh, to bring more awareness about the issues that existed not only back then but still exist today, Um, to make people more aware that we as human beings are not infallible. We make a lot of mistakes, and we as human beings have to understand that there are people among us, people in our own families, people who are very close to us who may be struggling and suffering and sometimes in silence because of fear of what may be said to them or what may happen to them because they reveal that. You know, I would think if you think that one in four of the population suffer from mental illness, you would think the same would be the true in any profession, especially one in which there's a brotherhood of people who are Roman Catholic priests. uh, In the clergy, one in four would suffer from mental illness, But if the church is not sensitive to their own people, how do you expect them to be sensitive to people outside? Who are the parishioners? Who are the congregations? Uh, I would hope that, you know, that each of these systems look within to see, you know, for one thing, how are those people who uh, have mental illness, how can they help us? You know, not how can they hurt us, but how can they help us? How can they provide What we need to help others, because that's ultimately those types of people are the best people to provide the help that's needed. And then in the mental health system, what are the checks and balances that we need? What is working today versus what was working back then? Okay? And how can we incorporate what, you know, this very personal story? How can we incorporate in what we're doing today? And then law enforcement, what kind of training is needed so we have fewer encounters such as this? How can we de-escalate situations, not escalate them to the point where someone's dying? Now, I, I, I say this. what I feel for police officers, there's a big difference. Unless, in a lot of instances, the people they're encountering don't have guns or they don't know how to use them, the officer, yeah, should feel threatened, but ultimately with that gun has the ability to ultimately stop the situation. But I I don't see many officers who want to use that weapon. I mean, you just don't see it. And if they're trained to de-escalate the situation, is there a time where they don't have to use that weapon? And I think in the end, all of us as human beings do not want to take the life of another one.
1: Okay, Joe. Joe. One of the things that we do to close out the show is it's something that Mike Bros, your friend, says to us at the end of every staff meeting. He says, go do good things. And so that's kind of become our motto for the show. So it would be an honor if you could close us out with uh, a reminder that we all play a role in, in educating the public so horrible tragedies such as your brothers never happen again. So I'll leave it to you, Joe.
0: I hope that we as individuals begin to understand what we face in the society, but not simply as numbers as people. That behind every number that you see, um, behind that one in four number, behind the number of uh, shootings involving those who are suffering from mental illness, there's an individual who had a life. There's an individual who smiled, who loved to be with people, who loved to laugh who was a rock and a foundation. So I think what I hope that comes from, you know, from all this is that you see the good in each individual and that we are all people and then in the end we see each other as human beings not as a number. And I want to have a special thanks to Mental Health Association Oklahoma for what it does for the community That desperately needs them, and finally, I want to say to all of you who are listening on this podcast: Go do good things.
2: Three shots through your chest. Three. Six sounds grew on red clay, six loves one edge away, you stay with me.